0: The National Archives podcast series. This is a three-part talk recorded at the National Archives on the 11th of Feb 2017. The event was organised as part of Outing the Past, the National LGBT History Festival. This is part two, with Emma Vickers discussing the lives of trans veterans of the British Armed Forces. Um, Thanks for coming, everyone. Um, This isn't a massively long presentation, but I hope that it stimulates discussion and... um, It's kind of a new area for me in lots of ways um, and it's kind of nice to share it with you. So um, I'll talk a little bit about the project that is ongoing. It's been running for a couple of years now and it's called Dry Your Eyes, Princess. Um, And there are a couple of images that are attached to it as well that I'll kind of share with you. So um, for for trans people that are currently serving um, in the British Armed Forces, um, I think it's fair to say that the outward impression that's projected by the Ministry of Defence Is one of acceptance. So Hannah Winterbourne, um, who is purportedly the Ministry of Defence's, sorry, who is purportedly the Army's first trans officer, um, she made the front page of The Sun um, and was pictured in a number of other newspapers. She was also recently featured in The Sun as well um, in a, a kind of catch up article. Hannah isn't the only um, or the first person to come out in this way. So in December 2014, um, Flight Lieutenant Isla Holdham sold her story to the Daily Mail and she was announced as the first trans-military pilot um, to serve in the RAF, um, although she was closer to the force. Um, Both women I think it's fair to say are less than keen to um, draw on the past to talk about what happened before policies changed and in particular they're not very keen to acknowledge the debt that they owe to the trans personnel that came before them. And in the spirit of that I kind of thought oh I wonder what did happen before so that's kind of what set this off. So the stories that um, Isla and Hannah narrate are really affirming and they suggest nothing more than integration into service life um, and linked to this successful transitions to, quote, unmistakably feminine women. And that's a direct quote from um, the Daily Mail. And I know, you know, it's the Daily Mail but. Um, <laughs> so we have a, a reader that commented on Isla's story in the online version of the Daily Mail, which I think always brings out the, uh, the, the nasties. But anyway, um, this person said, quote, Unlike a number of other transgender folk, this young lady is not only intelligent, she's also extremely attractive and looks feminine, and then in brackets, thin, delicate wrists, etc. Oh. So, yeah, so anyway, there you go. Um, oh. <laughs> stabbing the screen um so both um both isla and and hannah are media trained and they are part of an orchestrated campaign to depict the armed forces as we've said as, as fairly welcoming fairly progressive although to me this kind of um elides a very obvious distinction between the progressiveness of a policy and how that policy is implemented i think that's a really important kind of point to make So following on from the work that I did um, on same-sex desire in the British Armed Forces during the Second World War, it's a book called Queen and Country if you're interested, I wanted to know how personnel who identified as trans were understood by the Armed Forces in post-war Britain Um, and also their motivations for joining um, what was and still is a very outwardly gender normative institution that doesn't deal with difference very well. And it's research that's really challenged me in a number of ways, not least because it's really hard to write a history um, that has no history, where you have no sources to go to or minimal sources to go to. Um, historically, diversity and gender difference, it should come no surprise to you, has always been problematized by the armed forces. So we have work by people like Woodward and Winter. Um, That's kind of confirmed that trans people um, remained conspicuously absent from discussion about diversity in the armed forces in Britain until about 2007. When the services as individual services rather than as a unit began thinking about how they could best formulate a policy on trans personnel. That was um, augmented in 2009 by what we call a defence information notice or a DIN which went across all three services Um, and it was recently updated a year or so ago um, with a few kind of uh, tweaks I guess you could call them. So in the absence of an official trail of evidence and mindful of the difficulties of researching trans lives in official repositories like, for example, the National Archives. And that's not to pick the National Archives out as an example um, of how difficult it is, because I love working here. They are absolutely brilliant when it comes to LGBT material. (coughs) But um, like every other archive that I'm aware of, trans um, personnel, trans people generally don't have a history. And that's a kind of, it's a real sore point, I think, for me. So because I don't have any kind of official official trail, my staple primary source is um, oral testimony. And so I started to interview veterans. I wanted to know what it was like for them to serve in the forces before 2007, so before we had this kind of instruction. We know that in 1999 the ban was lifted on open service in the British Armed Forces for lesbian, gay and bisexual personnel, but trans people never really figured in that ban or in its lifting because they were invisible in possessing a trans identity. Because more often than not, when the issue was raised of them coming to the attention of somebody, it was because they were assumed to have same-sex desire. They were assumed, it was assumed that they were committing indecency because It was never kind of figured into the, the, um, I think the armed forces are kind of 10 to 15 years behind civilian society. So gender, it was never seen that gender could be the issue if somebody was presenting with behaviour that that was in some way um, against the system, I suppose. So that means that before 1999, individuals were more often than not discharged for indecency, which is the catch-all term for same-sex desire, or for what we know as general unsuitability, which is a beautiful catch-all term for basically saying you're a bit shit. We'll get rid of you. Which I just—it's you know—it's it's, indecency itself is an awful term for categorising various things, and unsuitability is on the, in the same vein. It, it's just essentially a, um, a get-out. Um, many trans personnel were also discharged for, for um, deemed to be for, for, deem- for being deemed to be mentally unstable, which again is another um, a kind of horrible thing to have on have on one's um, service record. Um, because there's no policy, trans personnel were frequently um, treated on a case by case basis, um, which means that um, the treatment that they had was very inconsistent. Um, I think we can now say that the situation for trans personnel um, who are serving is much better, but the issues that they face are slightly different in that I think we're now looking at how, as I mentioned at the start, how um, policies are implemented from the top down. And we do have members of the armed forces who were serving before 2007 that have moved up the chain of command who may not have agreed with the policy changes and are attempting to come to terms with implementing (coughs) policies Um, and I think that that's where I kind of I'm interested in how they um, kind of filter the policy down so what I'm trying to say is that I don't necessarily think that a lot of personnel a lot of senior personnel agree with what they're being told to do. So the main aim of this um, study, which, as I say, is still ongoing, is to think about the culture of the armed forces, um, how that shaped constructions of gender and the effect of that um, culture on root and branch attitudes towards gender diversity before 2009. Fundamentally, I'm interested in people. How did they experience the services? How did they understand themselves? Why did they join... How did their peers relate to them? How did they survive? How did they flourish? Um, Those kind of questions. Um, So many of the the interviewees that I have spoken to um, never came on the radar of their officers or their peers because their trans identity um, was insignificant. It was hidden, and they served until they decided to leave. So it was a case of suppression. Others were removed um, from their respective services against their wishes because it was assumed that they were gay, for example, or um, because uh, they were deemed to be unsuitable for service or medically unwell. Some were actively encouraged to leave um, and made to pay their way out, known as a premature voluntary release, where they basically say, you need to leave, pay us some money, Um, write a cheque and then take your stuff. Um, and yeah, uh, yeah, so that happened, that was quite a kind of frequent thing um, that, that, uh, that happened to a lot of my interviewees. But I would say that a lot of them did um, serve very happily um, and um, kind of only pursued uh, living authentically as they saw it um, after they kind of came out of the armed forces. Now, one common theme amongst most of them, bar a couple, is that they saw their service as a means of correction as a means of trying to subvert the dislocation that some of them felt with their own physicality. Um, So Kat, who served in the army, um, believed that service was, quote, a way of trying to fix myself. Um, And there were others that kind of expressed that idea that if they could become fitter and harder and more disciplined, this would go away. Um, Dawn's a really interesting case study. Dawn also served um, in the army. She wanted to be at peak fitness in order to fight her doubts and push away what she felt. Um, But she said, quote, the thinner I got, the fitter I got, the thinner I got, and the more female I looked. So it made things worse for her. Um, I'm going to stop talking so much now and just move this on a little bit. There we go. So, um, I would still consider the project to be in in fairly early days because um, I haven't sat down and really gone through the testimony in any great kind of detail, but I wanted to show you one of the kind of outcomes of all of this, which is a photography project. So, I worked with um, a a photographer called Stephen King, um, and he um, listened to a selection of my um, interviews with these veterans, um, he reinterpreted them and thought about the kind of what he calls pinnacle moments of their service. And then he went to collaborate with them for a day. And together they came up with photographs that um, summed up their experience of service. And it's one of the it's a very kind of rare thing when an, an artist will relinquish the control of their um, their artistic control, I suppose, in order to work with a, um, um, a perfect stranger to create something like this so I think it gives you know a lot of control back to these veterans Um, and it was a very very successful exhibition so it showed as part of Outburst in Belfast um, and at the Museum of Liverpool um, a couple of years ago for a month and in the month that it was there at the Museum of Liverpool it had um, over 60,000 people come and view it. So just to kind of, the reason why I'm going to show you this and another image is to show you um, through these images the kind of um, uh, inconsistency of treatment uh, that these veterans faced. So this is Chrissy. Chrissy joined the Army Air Corps in 1979 um, and in 1984 she found herself on charges which included indecency. A female colleague um, had been put on a charge after a heavy night out of drinking with Chrissy and her friends. And this had made this individual really late for a job, which was to pick up the wife of a senior official. So this woman had got completely lost in the fog, panicked and then been called into the office. She was questioned and she told all about her sexuality. And she named colleagues that had been accompanying her to gay bars in London and Cardiff. Chrissy was implicated in this, um, this ring. Um, now, Chrissy was using the nights out in London and in Cardiff to dress as she wanted to present, to be Chrissy. And unfortunately, as a consequence of, of being named, she was investigated. She knew that she would most likely be sent to Colchester Prison. She knew that she would most likely be dishonorably discharged from the army for indecency, which, as we've said, is the catch-all term for same-sex offences. She, in the face of really acute bullying over a period of, of, of a couple of hours where she was repeatedly shouted at, she managed to demand a court martial And because of that, she um, was allowed a premature voluntary release, which, as we've said, allowed people to pay their way out quietly and just disappear. If she had not stood up to that officer that was shouting in her face, she would have been sent to Colchester Prison. So she had to fight for her life, really, um, in that particular situation. Chrissy, believe it or not, it doesn't sound like it, but she is one of the lucky ones. Because uh, there is an unknown uh, number of trans personnel who left the services with a criminal record precisely because of the same things. Now, this image um, by Stephen encapsulates Chrissy's um, feelings about the army. So, Chrissy says, It was a cage I willingly entered, a bait for the wrong reasons. But as the years went by, the cage got smaller and smaller and more dangerous for me. Even so, Escape from it took more courage than I was ever required to exhibit when inside of it. Um, And with a bit of kind of serendipity, Stephen and Chrissy were driving past um, St. Helens, um, where Chrissy is located, and they managed to find a basketball court that had red, white, and blue. And there were a number of kind of incidents when he was with interviewees and they found these beautiful, symbolic kind of places to have these photographs. So I think that's a, a good one. So The next one and the last one is Caroline. Um, Caroline retired from the RAF in 2014 after a very successful career as a helicopter pilot and instructor and she still instructs to this day. Caroline um, announced her decision to transition in 1998 after 18 years of service. Um, She remembers thinking, um, hang on a minute, this is my life. I get one shot at this life and what the hell am I doing living it to somebody else's expectations? I need to move on. So I did. So she had the strength of mind. Instead of just retiring, she said, actually, I'm going to be really open about what I want to do. She um, exposed herself to um, her commanding officer and said, this is who I want to be, and they said, "Um, that's absolutely fine. And this was in 1998, obviously a year before they lift the ban on LGB. So she's exceptionally lucky to have had such a good experience with her commanding officers. She didn't have the best experience with some of her colleagues. She tells the story um, of one particular incident, and this is one of many. Actually, I can tell you a couple that are pretty horrific, where people that had known her um, before she began transition entered the room, saw that she was there, and then turned their backs to her and continued to walk so that they had their backs to her throughout the duration of of the fact she was in the room. She was in another... um, She recalls another incident where she was piloting a helicopter. Um, She's in the the kind of front of the, the cab... Um, men are just coming into the back to kind of load on and she hears phrases like don't touch it don't touch it you'll catch it you'll catch it so despite the fact that she had what some would kind of consider a straightforward declaration to her senior officers from her peers and the people underneath her and the people that she was supposed to work with she had a really tough time um, She is the first officer to transition and serve openly in the British Armed Forces. She has a book that is just about to be released called True Colours, which is a memoir of her service, which I would encourage you all to get. And she is a remarkable individual. So this picture encapsulates um, her feelings about her service and in particular, the isolation that she experienced before she felt able to disclose her desire to live openly as herself. I would also kind of say that I think it depicts the isolation she felt after as well. Um, But she doesn't dwell on that because she's super positive. So I'm gonna kind of finish up now and just say that um, I think that while we can see Um, real pain in these images I think you can also see and I can see hope and I can see agency and I can see visibility and I think it's this last kind of This last one, visibility, that is most important when it comes to um, not only trans veterans, but also trans history. We need to do a really, we need to kind of prioritise now. We need to make sure that we are reinterpreting collections that we have in archives, that we are actively collecting, that we're pushing for funding, and that we're doing more history that makes the tea visible. So that's my little agenda for the next 20 years, probably. Thanks very much. podcast is copyright to the national archives all rights reserved it is available for reuse under the terms of the open government license